Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, whoever wishes for the life of this world and its adornment, we shall surely give him that which he deserves in it, and they will not be shortchanged in anything. It is they who in the next world shall have nothing but the fire. Vain was what they did, and invalid, false, uh, was everything that they used to do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is delivering a warning. He is saying, he has bestowed upon us so much and so much time, possessions, love, all kinds of benefits again and again. And if we turn away from this and just look at the surface of things and not the meaning of things, if we look at the signpost but don't read it, but just enjoy its shape and take pleasure in its outward form, we are kindling in our souls a fire. This agitation that modern people so often complain of. Anxiety, panic attacks. They look at the surface of things and nowadays they have more of the surface of things than they ever did before. Zahir al-hayati dunya the outward form, the skin of everything, more and more. And the destructiveness of this, of course, is not just in the environment, but is in the environment within, the inner universe, that burning and burning. Their hearts are burning. They want more, but it's like drinking from the sea. It's salt. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Nobody ever has enough of dunya if they are people of dunya. The Holy Prophet says, alayhi salatu wassalam, law kana lil insani wadin min dhahab, latamanna an yakuna lahu wadiyan, wa la yamla'u fahu illa turab. If a man had a whole valley of gold, he would want to have a second valley of gold, but at the end, it is only dust that will fill his mouth. We know this, but we don't know this. And thus we create this fire in our hearts whose reality we will see after death. So what is this love of the world and its zina? Are we not to love anything in it? Are we to be constantly scowling at its blessings? Of course not. The believer is a one of balance. Just as ours is an age of crazy imbalance, so that even the planet seems to be dying, the air is heating, the forests are on fire, the ice is melting. Ah, why? Because of human desire. Just because of greed. It's not the fault of the religions. It's not the fault of the ulama or the awliya or of anybody. It's the fault of materialism. Ah, which means it's our fault as well. How much we too love dunya too much. But the Holy Prophet وسلم, comes to warn us about this anxiety. To warn us that usually what we gain in dunya that is above what we really need hurts us more than it heals us. You might think, oh, I have an extra hundred thousand pounds. I'll put it in these bonds or in these stocks or in this property. Uh, and then maybe in 10, 20 years, if you live that long, the value might go up. But who knows? It might go down. And then that also worries you. Is the value going up or down? Did I do the right thing? 
Will I lose my investment? Generally, with money that we have that is beyond our legitimate need, it causes us more grief than happiness. Whatever the world might be promising us, whatever Mr. Sunak might be promising us, too much is harmful. And eventually, as you go through life, you realize this simple lesson. The Holy Prophet says, alayhi salatu he says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, even two wolves let loose in a fold of sheep would not do more harm than love of wealth and of repute does to the deen of a believing Muslim. Wolves, not just one wolf, but two wolves, because these are two desires. I like to be wealthy and to have stuff, but I also like everybody to point at me and to praise me. This is the other danger of the dunya. Often they're put together in the sunnah. The Holy Prophet loved Imam Ali, his cousin and his son-in-law, who was chosen for the unique privilege of marrying Fatima al-Zahra radiallahu anha. What does he say to Imam Ali? إِنَّمَا هَلَاكُ النَّاسِ بِاتِّبَاعِ الْحَوَىٰ وَحُبِّ الْجَاهِ فَاسْأَلِ اللَّهَ الْعَافِيَةِ He tells him, this great man, this great hero, the man of Futuwa, the fountainhead of the Ahlul Bayt, he says, people are only destroyed by these two loves. Love of material things and love of reputation. So ask Allah for protection and well-being. And this prayer has gone down in his descendants through the Ahlul Bayt. And the true ones are very impressive. Despite the honor of their lineage, the barakah that, that attends them, the true ones are so modest and so humble, knowing that all blessings are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But is this the case with us? This is a prophetic warning, even to Imam Ali. Remember his sword, the famous sword with two points, Dhul Faqar. Why does it have two points? Every Muslim child is told this because the real Mujahid, the real warrior, is not just the one who points his sword against the enemies of justice and balance in the world. But at the same time, he points his sword towards the enemies of justice and balance in himself. Uh, with jihad, there must be Mujahada. Riyadatul nafs, tahdeeb al-akhlaq, overcoming those demons within that need to be constantly and mercilessly fought at all times. And this is what we call futuwa. Imam Ali, karramallahu wajhahu, the amazing hero of futuwa, inward and outward struggle. Outward struggle, without inward perfection, corrupts the world. Inward struggle, without an attempt to improve the world, is not real. If you're a purified person, you want the world to be pure as well. Because love for Bani Adam comes naturally to the purified heart. You can't separate them. But then we ask ourselves this question, this struggling against Hawa, does that mean that we're enemies of human nature? That we should go against ourselves? 
that all of these instincts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed within our hearts, a desire for this, a longing for that, this reflex, that reaction, that all of that is wrong, that we are fundamentally bad beings. What about the fitrah? What about the angels that bowed down to Adam alayhi salam? What about the karamna bani Adam? We have ennobled the descendants of Adam. What is wrong with our clay that we are told to fight things that seem to be natural within it? But that fight is the fight of the two-pointed sword. Improve things in the world, improve things within yourself. If you look within yourself, for more than a fraction of a second, you will see those animals. The pig of gluttony, the dog of desire, the donkey of stubbornness, all of those animals, the menagerie, the zoo that is within ourselves, it's all there, barking and oinking and quacking. Yes, they are within us. So what should we do? We need to grow up. Not to become other than what Allah has made us to be, but to become what he has made us to be. So we need this principle that Islam calls riyadatun nafs, disciplining the self. It's a kind of battle. Sometimes they call it the greater jihad, but it's an inward struggle. And we all know that without it, we are nothing. If we just follow our impulses and our fleeting desires, what are we? Just like babies, maturation is the same thing as self-understanding and being able to control oneself. That's what it is to be mature. The poet says, the ego, the nafs, the lower self, is like a baby. Uh, it will continue to grow and continue to suckle uh, until it is weaned. And when it is weaned, it is weaned. That's when it becomes mature. There comes a point with every baby when it has to be taken, maybe crying, away from the mother's breast and has to be given solid food, cow's milk, other things. That's part of the process of growing up. We need to remember that that's a lesson for us as well. How often we just sleepily suck away at the desires of this world, hoping for the next one, snacking, indulging, scrolling, all of these things, uh, and it's kind of like an uncontrolled child. This is an age of undisciplined adults, of childish adults. But the believer is the one who is the master of that, who is weaned, who is truly an adult, a real man or a real woman. And so the poet, the same poet goes on to say, So now he comes up with another metaphor and he says, Who is going to help me to control this southern stallion that's galloping away with me? Uh, where will I find the reins to control it and pull it back? What's he referring to? The stallion is the nafs, the ego, the source of these powerful impulses. I really want to do this. I really want to look at that. I really want to do the other thing. I'm tired. I need a break. I need, I need. Huh. How are we going to find the reins to pull back that stallion? And it's that stallion that promises us excitement that causes all of the misfortunes of the human family. In families, between families, in neighborhoods, in the world the environmental crisis. Uh, we're just gobbling and guzzling, we're not pulling ourselves back. 
وراعها وهي في الأعمال سائمة وإن هي استحلت المرعى فلا تسمي and watch it and be a good shepherd to it as it is grazing in the field of pleasures and desires. The ego is kind of like a sheep. It sees, oh, there's nice sweet grass there and it nibbles. And then it says, there's another sweet treat over there and it goes over there and that's its life. And so he's saying to the shepherd, if the ego desires a particular area and finds it completely sweet and delightful, ah, then don't graze there. Watch out. If you're a sheep, what are you? Munching away, like the materialists of this age, consuming this, consuming that, enjoying the street, watching that, uh, until you fall over dead, and that's life. Like sheep, we don't eat grass, but we're eating just about everything else. And a sheep munches and munches, but never once does it look up. And we are required by the prophetic call to look up, to see heaven. But this must be balanced. Allah is saying, don't forget your portion of this world. It is not wrong to love earning a living and to love one's income if one is doing positive things with one's income. Getting a good education for your children. Buying a car that can take them to school. Taking them on Hajj and Umrah. Keeping your wife in the manner to which she is accustomed helping the poor, paying your zakat, these are honorable things, good things. There's nothing wrong with that. So when we talk about overcoming the ego's desire for stuff, we're talking about the ego's desire for stuff, not what is legitimate, the good things, the legitimate zina or adornment of this world uh, can be ours. And this is what we mean by the way of balance. But this other thing that he's talking about and that he warns Imam Ali about, this love of repute. Who can deny that? We like to have a good reputation. We like people to speak well of us. We like them to praise us. We like them to go online and say good things about us. This is human nature as well. Ah, and this is dangerous. However, does this mean that because we're not supposed to be proud, this mortal sin of pride, that for instance, when we're applying for a job, or when we write our CV, that we only put down the kind of negative things that we know to be true because we're afraid of boasting. Okay. Of course not. You can't get a job nowadays unless you say, oh, I'm a good team player, and I like working to deadlines, and I really like a challenge, and I like thinking out of the box. Okay. Everybody says that, but if you don't say that, you won't get the job, which may be your haq. And you may be the best person for the job, and it may be a job in which you can help people. So if you have qualifications in that situation, it is not from the ego to say that you have those qualifications. We know in the surah of Sayyidina Yusuf, salam, when everybody knows that there's going to be a terrible climate change catastrophe, a drought for seven years, threatening the entire population, Sayyidina Yusuf does not modestly stay quiet. He says, He says, put me in charge of the storehouses of the land huh? because I am reliable and trustworthy. So he's there presenting his CV and he's saying, yes, I can do this job. And as a result of that, the entire population of that land is saved. So being afraid 
of fame and celebrity and being praised is not the same as constantly being negative about yourself. And in Islam, you're not supposed to tell people too much about what is negative in yourself. You're not supposed to unveil your faults. You might think, out of sincerity, to overcome my ego, I'm going to tell everybody about this terrible thing that I did. No. Islam does not like this. It likes things to be veiled. Why? Because everybody's talking about sin all the time. People will assume that sin is normal. People will be encouraged to do it. If people assume everybody is kind of good, it makes it harder for people to break that. And the other thing is, when people are criticizing us and attacking our reputation, Unfortunately, in this age of lack of restraint, lack of adab, everybody seems to be doing this. Everybody is attacking each other, criticizing each other for religious reasons or for non-religious reasons. It's very boring. Islam does not like this. This is not from the prophetic way. So we have in the work of Imam Ghazali, rahmatullahi alayhi, he says, you'll be criticized Think about this. There are three kinds of criticism that could come your way. Firstly, there is a criticism that is correct, that actually is there to help you. Secondly, there's a criticism that is correct, that people are making to hurt you. And finally, there's a criticism that is just a lie, slander, backbiting, riba, namima, tail-bearing. It's going to be in one of those three categories. He's writing this nine centuries ago, but certainly in our age of online polemic of 4chan and reddits and the nasty riba-filled world of the cyberspace, uh, this is important. So he goes through these. First of all, somebody may criticize you in order to help you. He says, don't get angry. They're trying to help you out. They're trying to correct you. The ego doesn't like that. Never likes it. But remember Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an, the second righteous Khalifa, used to say, May Allah show his mercy to a man who tells me of my faults. <laughs> That's a real ruler. Why does he want to know his faults? Because they're faults and he wants to be better. Woe betide anybody who uh, attempts this with a ruler in the modern Muslim world, but Sayyidina Omar cared about the people and didn't care about his ego. So that's the first. It's pure benefit. And that is how true friendship are, is forged. Uh, the sadiq, the friend, is the one who is sadiq, truthful. And then there is the criticism that is made of you in order to hurt you. What do you do about that? You might have published, say, a volume of poems uh, and poets, if you've ever met them, really, really don't like to be criticised. It's usually hopeless. It's like criticising a mother's baby or something. It just isn't going to work. Uh, but somebody comes along and says, I don't like this poem of yours on page 32. I think that the imagery is wrong. I think that the scanning doesn't work. I think that the metaphors are clumsy. Uh, it's, it's rubbish. It's trying to put the needle in. Maybe he's telling everybody. The Imam says, when that happens, huh? again, don't be angry. 
Because if you put it right, you can see, yeah, actually that poem isn't much good. And in the next edition, you make it right. You're benefiting. So he has intended to hurt you, but in fact he's helped you. So why get angry? And the third category is somebody who's criticizing you with a pack of lies. In front of a crowd of people, he might say, uh, brother, I know you were not fasting in Ramadan last year. And it's not true, you knew that you were. Or he might say, brother, I know that you smoke cigarettes. And it's not true, you know that you don't. How can you benefit from that situation? How do you deal with it? Well, first of all, the Imam says, remember the principle that even if you know that that person's criticism isn't right, think of all of your secret faults that he might be criticizing you for that thankfully he doesn't know about. So be humble and say, Alhamdulillah, he spotted something that's actually not right. That's the first reaction of the sound heart. Secondly, know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards in paradise the victim of backbiting. So this enemy of yours is trying to upset you, but in fact he's giving you an incomparable blessing in the next world, especially if you respond correctly. So this too is something amazing, something that we can benefit from. So in all of these situations we need to think, how then do we respond? If the ego, the jahili shouting, the desire for revenge, uh, the way of Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl, fight back. If we're not going to follow that, because it leads just to more fitna and more darkness in the world. Remember the great Nizamuddin Awliya of Delhi, who used to say, if somebody throws a thorn in your path and you throw a thorn in theirs, eventually the whole world will be full of thorns. But Allah says, idfa' billatihi ahsan. Push back with something better. So with slander and lying, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, we can think of various solutions to this, to this situation. And inshallah, um, in coming khutbahs, we will be assessing this. How do we deal with it? Well, let us just remember, how did the Holy Prophet وسلم, deal with all the catastrophes and the insults that were hurled at him? Remember the dark day of Uhud, maybe the worst day of his life, uh, when he saw the bodies of his beloved Sahaba, Mus'ab bin Umayyad, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib and others lying dead, mutilated at the end of that dark day. Uh, and at the end of the day, when they're burying the dead and the women are crying, they can see the campfires of Quraysh in the darkness, in the distance, knowing that they are singing and drinking and dancing. And the Holy Prophet raises his hands and the Sahaba wonder what prayer this will be. Will he call for them to be destroyed by a whirlwind or a volcano or a plague the way that earlier deniers of prophecy were punished? But what does he say? Allahumma ghfir qawmi wahdihim fa innahum la ya'lamun Oh Allah, forgive my people and guide them because they do not know. SubhanAllah. And everybody is amazed. And when the word gets to the unbelievers in the tribes in Medina and to the munafiqeen in Medina, everybody's amazed. How can this happen? This is the prophetic way. You do not allow the insults of a people and their outrages to make you forget the basic duty that you have towards them. They don't see Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They just see 
Abu Talib's orphan, Yatim Abi Talib, and they think, well, we have to stop this. What do they know? That's a very beautiful moment. But remember again this issue of, and I want to close with this, when can we be proud? And again, the battle. Abu Dujana, radiallahu an, famous warrior amongst the Sahaba, the Arabs valued the hero, the courageous man, the strong man. During the Battle of Uhud, at the beginning of the day, and they knew what a titanic, history-changing day this would be, they lined up with the armor, arrows ready, and the Holy Prophet says to them, who will bear my sword? What an honor. Of course, everybody's hand goes out. Everybody wants this, the barakah, the protection, the honor, whatever it might be. And then he says, who will bear my sword while upholding its haq, its right? And the hands go back. People think. It's not just the weight of iron here, it's the weight of moral responsibility. In the white-hot heat of battle, well, they'd rather not take on that responsibility, a prophet's sword. But Abu Dujana radiallahu an says, I will uphold its right. He's this great hero, a big man with a red turban around his helmet. And during the battle, he's tireless all day long, the fight, fighting rages, and he pushes his way alone through the ranks of Quraysh and the idolaters until he finds himself behind their front line. And there are the women screaming and shrieking and waving their idols and praising their idols. And amongst them is Hind bint Otba. We know Hind bint Otba. She is the one who commissions her slave Wahshi to kill Hamza, a hitman. And at the end of the battle, she is the one who tears open the body of this great Shaheed, the one whom the Holy Prophet loved so deeply, uh, and chews on his liver to enjoy the taste of revenge. This is the kind of people. And already, during the battle, she is urging the Quraysh to, to desecrate the dead. Abu Dujana is there. She is not able to fight against him. But he leaves her alone. And after the battle, he says, I did not want to stain the Prophet's sword with a woman's blood. Ah, so he did uphold the right of the sword. Ah, that's an amazing story. That even in an extreme situation, uh, you overcome the ego, overcome the self, overcome the jahili impulse for revenge, to lash out, uh, and you maintain the principle of what we call futuwa, the point of the sword that is outward against the enemies of balance in the world, and the point of the sword that is towards the self, towards its lower impulses, towards the atrocities that we know that we're capable of. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us people of balance, make us people who triumph in the inward jihad, so that we become beautiful people and luminous people, people whose inward light spills out and brings light and peace and reconciliation to a world which Dali needs it at this dark point in history. Barakallahu fikum wal afu minkum.
أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين إنه هو الغفور الرحيم